I am JW Judge, and this is The Right Approach. I'm alone at the moment because things are a little bit out of order. We just finished recording our episode with Scott Tarot, and when the episode started, we launched right into our conversation, and I didn't want to interrupt it with an introduction, so I am recording that introduction now. Scott Tarot is the author of international bestsellers like Presumed Innocent and The Burden of Proof. He is one of the innovators of the legal thriller genre, and he has a new book called Suspect that comes out today. And we're going to jump right into the interview with Scott Tarot, and this is The Right Approach. So have you done uh, many podcast appearances? Um, short answer. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, every time I publish a book, even though, I mean, it's only been two years, but, um, you know, it's still the, the, the business changes every single time, Yeah. whether it was, you know, the beginning of book discounting, um, with, you know, the, with one L, um, People were horrified when the Harvard bookstore sold 1L for 30, 30% off. Wow. And of course, the next time I published a book that was industry standard. Um, you know, and now the, you know, the, the public publicity with a, with a book shifts more and more, you know, to podcasts and, and social media. But especially podcasts. I mean, the, the rise of the podcast in the last few years has been really impressive. Have you enjoyed that change or did you like the older way? You know, the I don't know if it was in person or how you navigated all that before. Well, I, you know, I would always do in-person events. I've never been, I, I'm never sure with in-person events whether um, whether I, I'm the premium in the Cracker Jack box that the publisher is giving away to maintain relations with, um, with various important bookstore accounts. Um, you know, it's enjoyable. And there are, you know, Mary Higgins Clark, may she rest in peace, was said to have built her authorship literally one, one reader at a time with in-person events. So I, you know, I don't know. I'm constantly meeting people who say, you know, I saw you 20 years ago at X, Y, and Z. So um, I suppose it, it can't hurt. Um, you know, the, in the old days when, you know, you, you go on network television um, and reach, you know, 30 million people one morning. I don't know if anybody was awake enough to read, but, uh, or even notice, um, you know, that was, that was less diffuse. I'm not sure though. Um, you know, the great, the nice thing about your podcast is that, um, you know, the people who listen are interested in what you're talking about. So it's much, much more targeted. uh, And that's probably better for the author. I think so. And I think that statistics bear that out. And also you have such immediate access to going and buying the book that you just heard about. You know, it's not a matter of the next time I get out to a bookstore, I've got to remember to purchase it. It's I can, even while I'm listening, I can go click and purchase it. And, you know, there's so much more immediacy to it that 
I've, I've got to think that that's beneficial to the author as well. Uh, you know, I, I <laughs> my, my attitude toward this has always been, um, I write the book and my publishers sell it. And whatever they tell me to do, I'm going to do. Uh, because I, I think that's part of the agreement between us that I'm going to help them sell the book. But I follow their directions. So whatever their directions are, and um, sometimes they make sense most of the time, frankly. But every now and then it's like, I don't know why they think that's going to do any good. <laughs> Well, I want to jump in just for a second to say I went to law school in 1979, started. So I read 1L from cover to cover several times and was alternately terrified and encouraged. So thank you for that. Well, you know, I, always, I always say that the people who went to law school after reading 1L, uh, in spite of it, have only themselves to blame. Yes, exactly. They were warned. They were warned. Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you for that. I'm, I'm happy to have done it. So, <laughs> well, there's so much ground that I want to cover. Yeah. Um, so since this is a podcast about the craft of writing, I wanted to start with this. When you start writing a novel, how well developed is the story at that point? Uh you know, the answer is yes and no. Um, if you really want to say, I mean, I don't know when I start writing a novel because um, I'm in that phase now. There's a lot on paper. Most of it is not sequential. Uh, and I won't begin the process of writing a first draft until... Uh, I, I feel like that sort of prowling around uh, within the book is over. At that point, you know, I, I know what, when I start the first draft, I know, you know, what's supposed to come first and what's supposed to come second. And, um, you know, that's all been figured out. I know who the characters are. Um, and then, you know, in the writing, things happen. Um, you know, there's always a character who decides she or he is much more important than I thought uh, she was. And um, and that's basically what happened with Pinky in my last novel, which is why she's <clears throat> now got a book of her own. Um, so, but I, I have gotten into the first draft without knowing what the end is. Um, I started writing a just a sort of outline for my editor. So he knew what I was doing. Um, and I, I, I sent the first draft of that to my agent. She says, well, don't, don't say you don't know what the ending is. <laughs> don't, tell, don't tell him that, you know, say something like, you know, you're considering a number of alternatives or something. Well, in the process of, of saying that, I actually figured out what I think is a pretty good ending. So, um, but we'll see. So when you're doing that initial prowling around, does that tend to start with characters or is that a plot or story idea? It's a situation. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll take Pinky, for example, in Suspect. Um, I knew that given 
the fact that Pinky had proven pretty adept as an investigator, that that was likely to be the next step in her life professionally. Um, and uh, so, you know, and then the question is, can, can I really successfully write from the point of view of a 33-year-old woman uh, whose uh, sexual preferences are not identical to my own? Um, and, you know, that's, that's just a matter of trying it out and seeing if, if it'll come, if the voice, if the voice is really there. So um, there, there's no hard answer that I, that I can give to your question, but it's always a matter of feel. Can I jump in on Pinky? Because um, what great character. And like you say, she's not, she's not anything like who I am. Yeah. Um, you know, you, when you write um, Sandy Stern or Marta, that comes from you. You've got your own experience. You can fill that out. So right. I want to ask a little bit about where you got Pinky's voice from, but also she's so interesting. I hope you continue her um, because although she's got a lot of rough edges on her, she's got this wonderful intellect and more important, this great heart, this wonderful warm heart in her. Um, and she's really committed to what is fair. It makes her so compelling. So how, how in the heck did you write this? She would be odd for anybody to write. Yeah. Where did um, you get her from? Well, I, I think the one kind of core realization I had about this young woman from the time I first started writing about her in the last trial was that uh, she was never going to normalize herself. She she just wasn't going to react uh, in situations the way the majority of other people react. And so what she was coming to terms with, no matter how self-deprecating she is, is the fact that she's different. And now in her early 30s, I, I think she's beginning to become somewhat easier with herself and just accepting the fact that, you know, she's weird pinky. She's always going to be weird pinky. She's going to have blazing insights and make colossal blunders. Uh, and both, both um, things are part of who she is. So, uh, you know, uh, will she ever form a permanent romantic relationship. I, I don't know. I think her relationship with her grandfather was, you know, a stable, loving relationship uh, and probably, you know, like the pathway into her adulthood. Um, so she does know she and has come to accept there are people who will love her for who she is. So, um, but, you it know, sounds like she's got a future. Sounds like she's She's going to go on beyond suspect. Well, Am I correct in that hope? Uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that question yet, Barbara. So um, we'll, we'll see. Um, you know, David Kelly just optioned the, the novel. And of course, he would love it if I write more pinky books. Yeah. Well, so, me too. Put me and David on the same well, well, side you. of the ledger. Okay. And I think it, that age is such an appropriate age to have those like real life realizations. So I'm 40 as of this year. And it was really about four years ago that I got really comfortable with the 
creative side of myself. Um, you know, I started out after college, I was a high school teacher and then went to law school and started my law practice in 2012. And so there was a period of time where I'm learning how to be a lawyer and there wasn't much time for creativity while I'm trying to, to the extent that you can master it, you know, I was trying and I, you know, I know Barbara was, uh, she practiced for a long time as well, but it was, you know, about four years ago that I really came back to my creative writing and got comfortable with that part of myself. So for that character to have those same realizations about herself, where she's trying to get comfortable in her own skin at about that same age, it just, that really fit for me. Yeah. I, I don't know how, you know, I came of age with a bunch of friends who got married when they were 22 and they found their, the, the profession they were going to enter. And I, I have to say all my life, I've sort of scratched my head and, and wondered how happy they really are because um, they didn't give themselves a lot of time to explore. And some of the marriages worked out. Some of them didn't, um, you know, my own included. Um, and it's, uh, I, I think the normal process of adulthood, at least in this culture, involves, should involve a period of not really knowing who the hell you are uh, or not knowing completely. And, uh, you know, Pinky in that, to that extent, I think her experience is universal. Well, if we can go back several years to when you were writing presumed innocent, mm -hmm. I know we had paper chase and things by that time, but were you aware that you were pioneering a genre that, had not been very explored at that point? You know, um, several things about that in answer to that. Um, number one, uh, the courtroom story had existed, you know, since, uh, you know, Socrates uh, or the Merchant of Venice. Uh, and I, you know, and I was well aware of anatomy of a murder or even to kill a mockingbird. Mm -hmm. um, to use examples of forerunners. Um, and I was just really writing about what I knew. For me, the, I had been a writing fellow at Stanford, um, you know, in an English department where literary theory was a big deal. Uh, and eventually, of course, I realized that you, I felt that to be the writer I wanted to be. I had to write from the gut, not from the brain. Uh, and sitting in a courtroom um, where I was actually as a supervisor watching a couple of younger lawyers try a case, which by whatever irony went to the US Supreme Court, the only case I was involved in during those years that did that. Um, but I had this, I saw it was a food stamp case, right? We would not think of stealing food stamps from the mail as being like a major crime. Um, everybody in the courtroom was just spellbound as the government's main witness told the story about how this scheme had happened. And I suddenly thought, I said, I said you know, I had this belief that, um, that great literature is about universals. And, uh, it, and all, all of a sudden I realized the universal that I knew and was attracted to was crime. 
so that's how I started writing Presumed Innocent. Uh, and, you know, I was just writing about what I knew. The, the intense um, reflection on the nuts and bolts of a lawyer's life was really, I think, what Presumed Innocent added. Uh, in other words, if you go back and look at anatomy of a murder, or, um, there's, there's less focus on you know, the day-to-day life of the lawyer. Uh, and I just assumed that was important, that the mechanics of what went on to the calculations in the courtroom. Um, but I wasn't doing it to tread new ground. I was doing it because it's what came natural to me. Those were the things that I was interested in as a trial lawyer. Those were the ways that um, that I saw what happened in the courtroom. Is you know everything was related to everything else. It was like a you know the, the workings of a watch, um, and that that's just my purchase on reality. And uh, but obviously it 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 struck a chord. I, I will note though that at the time presumed innocent came out. It was clear that something was going on with the laws in terms of American culture because, you know, we had L.A. law on TV. Um, the the um, court TV had just begun. So people were interested in lawyers um, in a way that they hadn't been 30 years before. Uh, and I was just right time, right place. Um, you know, anybody who's been lucky enough, especially in the popular arena, um, it is just right time, right place is part of it is part of what they have to say for themselves if they're being honest. Well, there's- well I think that's incredibly humble of you. Um, I think it's a little more than that. Um, I, as you talk about your own experiences leading you in your books in last trial and then a little bit in suspect, Sandy Stern is already retired, but did you draw on your own feelings or feelings of your cohort, your friends, as they were starting to leave trial practices? I was a corporate lawyer, and it wasn't hard for me to step yeah. away, honestly. Yeah. Um, I didn't I, have that trial lawyer rush. I, I will say that I think retirement as a lawyer um, sort of crept up on me um, maybe more than some of my colleagues, because a lot of them were, you know, partners in big law firms where there were these hard dates uh, where they're expected to step out of the picture. Um, And I wasn't paying a lot of attention to that because I'd been on this part-time status anyway for many years. Uh, And all of a sudden I looked up and I realized, to be blunt, there were a lot fewer people left to refer me cases my clients were retiring, the, you know, the in-house people. Uh, my colleagues from the U.S. Attorney's Office were retiring. Um, and, you know, it was, it, it was obvious that life was changing. And I hadn't, I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about that. So the fact that, um, you know, that a career in the law is finite um, was, was definitely pressing itself on me. And... Uh, you know, and, and what the hell it all means at the end of the day uh, is something that I think every lawyer 
you know, considers, I hope, as especially as time winds on. Um, and they start to wonder, you know, well, what did I accomplish with all these late nights and lost weekends? Yeah. So when you were early on, and I don't know if Presumed Innocent was the first novel you wrote or just the first one that you sold. Uh, okay, that's perfect because that I think a lot of people experience that. So you had written books that you hadn't sold. How did you go about? So I've written four novels now while I've had my law practice and understand the intentionality that is required to be able to do that. How did you go about doing that for yourself and setting it aside the time for yourself to be able to do that? And I guess, why was that important for you? So uh, I'll go back to where I was before. I was a writing fellow at Stanford. I had said my entire life, I want to be a novelist. Um, and I actually had this steerage level academic appointment at Stanford as a lecturer in the English department. And I discovered what people sometimes discover when they're young and blundering around in the way we were talking about before, which was that I was not cut out to be an academic. Um, and, you know, for all kinds of different reasons, it's a great profession for those who want to do it, but not for those who just wander, wander in. So I started thinking about, well, what else am I going to do? Long story short, my friends who were lawyers had lives that I thought were really interesting. Um, were doing stuff that I thought was frankly more interesting to me than teaching English. And so I made this really astonishing decision to give up academic life and, and go to law school. But, you know, what do you do with what you've said to yourself for the 24 years before that, that I really want to be a novelist? And I promised myself that I would continue to write. I knew that was an important part of me. And, uh, and so I did. There were by then several unpublished novels, including the one that I wrote during my time at Stanford, which um, going back, Barbara, to wrong time and wrong place. Um, I think if I'd finished that novel four years earlier, it was basically a hippie novel. Um, if I had finished it in 1970 instead of 1974, I probably would have sold it. Mm -hmm. um, whether that would have made any difference to my life, I don't know. Um, but there were all of you know these unpublished works, and yet um, I was willing to keep trying. And so when I I published one L, very you know fortuitous. I'd written a letter to my agent saying I was going to law school and she showed it to an editor who said, oh, we ought to have a book, a nonfiction book about law school. So that's how 1L came about. Um, and then uh, I really felt that I had taken my own measure well when I decided to go to law school. I was fascinated by the law and that despite the, you know, the tidy little success that I'd had with 1L, that I was not going to abandon the law as a career. So I was then in that very hard place of, uh, you know, practicing law and, and writing on the side. And I would write on the morning commuter train. Uh, I would write uh, starting at 11 o'clock on Sunday night. Uh, and, um, but I, I knew it was important to sort of keep the flame burning. And, uh, and I did it because I wanted to do it. Uh, I always give credit to my ex-wife 
because she had wanted to, she married a writer and ended up with a lawyer and she didn't <laughs> like that. Uh, she, she preferred, you know, what writers do to what lawyers do. So she pushed me in that direction uh, and certainly supported it when I was downstairs pounding away at, you know, midnight on Sunday night. Uh, but, you know, that, that's how that happened. So I, I have two questions that maybe kind of related here, you know, with, with 35 years in writing fiction or selling fiction from the time, you know, Presumed Innocent came out. I also want to ask about kind of what your daily writing process looks like, but I guess the question I want to ask is, you know, are there things that you identify as keys to longevity and sustainability over, you know, a writing career like that? Um, you know, I, I, I don't think I have a formula to tell somebody else how to do it. I've, I've been unbelievably lucky, you know, it's thir 35 years, as you say, publishing novels that have, you know, have been very successful. And the one thing I have always been careful about, you know, I did not write a second novel about Rusty Savage as soon as Presumed Innocent was published, because I knew I was going to be cornering myself and clipping my own wings. And I wanted to find out what else I could do. Um, I wasn't necessarily committed to writing about the law. Um, I just, but it turned out that that decision that I made when I went to law school was very prescient. This, this is where the core issues in my personality get, get explored is, you know, in the practice of law in the conflict between, you know, what's right and wrong in the, in the sense that the society determines it and in this other sense that individuals determine it, how do you make rules and how permanent is it all anyway? And all of, the, all of those questions have just always been incredibly fascinating to me. But within that world, um, having found that I was comfortable staying there, I've still tried to do different things each time. Some, each, each, each novel, I hope, is a little bit different from, from what went before. And uh, even when I went back to Rusty Savage with Innocent, uh, I, by the time I got back to him, uh, you know, his life was much different. Uh, and it was, um, you know, it was, it was way different to be writing about somebody, um, you know, who would survive a cataclysm and somehow managed to wander over the edge of the waterfall again. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, I guess challenging myself a little bit every time is important. Uh, so what does your writing process look like? Are you somebody who sits down every day and, and writes or does it come and go and, you know, binges? How, how does that work for you? Well, um, the sort of cogitative stage, stage that I was talking about before, the, the prowling around or blundering around or bumping into walls kind of uh, stage can take place any time of day. Uh, and, you know, I could be making notes in bed at midnight or waking up with an idea at five in the morning uh, or, 
you know, getting an idea for something while I'm driving. I mean, a lot, a lot of stuff comes while I'm driving. Uh, so I'm, you know, mm -hmm. dictating into my phone. Um, then when I get to the first draft stage, which I'm very close to entering, then there's, there's just gotta be a routine. Wallace Stegner was, was one of uh, my teachers during my years as a fellow at Stanford and Wally, Wally was very committed to the idea that writing is a job. And, you know, there was a lot of um, sort of uh, avant-garde and bohemian frou-frou about, you know, waiting for inspiration. And Wally was like, you know, I write two pages every day of the year except Christmas. Uh, and at the end of the year, that means I have 730 pages. And in that, there's got to be something worth saving. And uh, if you don't put your butt in a chair uh, every day, um, then you're not giving the muse a chance to visit. You know, will she show up every day? No. Uh, and uh, will there be days that are just an incredible struggle where you find your head in the refrigerator uh, constantly? Yes. Um, but it's a job. Wally was right. It's a job. And you've got to make this determined effort to go forward. Um, so five days a week, for sure, I'll be writing. Will I write on the weekends? That depends on what comes to me. Uh, if I know uh, what's got to happen next in a chapter um, and it suddenly comes to me really clearly, yeah, I will. If I've got the time, I'll sit down and write. Um, but ordinarily, it's get up, have coffee, look at the newspapers, uh, and that's all digital these days, um, and then go upstairs by 8 or 8.30 and start writing. And I try to stay there till, you know, a great day is if I'm still sitting there at 1.30, I've had a wonderful day. Mm -hmm. uh, very often it's three hours or four hours. And I will admit that um, I discovered long ago that, you know, I don't really write for 60 minutes in an hour. So email has been very useful for dealing with the, you know, the stray 15 minutes. Um, and, you know, by whatever it is, 1.30, I'm ready. A, I'm hungry, I'm ready for lunch. And B, I'm ready to talk to my assistant uh, and find out, you know, she will remind me about what I'm supposed to be doing that I conveniently forgotten about. Um, so, and that, and that's the day. And then you go to sleep and you get up again the next morning and do the same thing again. And it's important to do it just that way. Mm -hmm. For me, anyway, I mean, some people want to outline. Um, I, I don't outline. Um, I have all these notes all over the place. I certainly know what the flow of the book is. Um, but I know very much what's got to be in the first chapters of the, this book. And um, I think starting is hard. I really do. And I'll rewrite the beginning of a book 10 times. Um, but I know what's got to be in there. And then it's just a question of the sequence of events and, you know, what do you explain when? You know, you, you've got um, other, other authors, successful authors like you in your space, uh, John Grisham and David Balducci. Are you guys buddies or do you just? Yeah. 
know who each other are? I'm just kind of curious. Oh, about I, I, I think our I think our contact is um, more intentional than that. Um, years ago, John and I went on a little uh, tour together for the benefit of the uh, Innocence Project. Um, and, you know, we stay in touch. If John's going to be in Chicago, he'll let me know. Um, and, uh, you know, I was coming to Charlottesville once. We had breakfast. He's a very good guy, you know. And, uh, and the same thing with Baldacci, who really is the hardest working guy in show business. Uh, David, just he's a writing machine. I once went to the plant. We're both published by Hachette. And I went to the plant and to sign books and I worked feverishly and I finished 3,500, you know, signatures in a day. And I proudly turned around. I said, is that the record? And they said, no. And they said, Baldacci arrived at 630 in the morning, having driven to, um, to Indiana from Virginia, uh, signed 6,000 copies and got in his car and went and drove back home to Virginia. <laughs> so when I say David is the hardest working man in show business, I really mean it. He's just, oh my gosh. And, you know, and he spends a lot of time like with Mark Twain house. Uh, and uh, there's a book festival he's asked me to appear at next February where he's involved. He's just, he and Michelle are terrific people, um, you know, very good souls committed to a lot of very good things. And I say the same thing about John and Renee. So as we get ready to kind of close this out, because I want to be really cognizant of your time because we appreciate you coming on. I think I want to ask you another question. And most people think that writers want to go full time with their writing careers, but you continued to practice law for a long time after the commercial success of your books had been well established. What was it about practicing law and that career and litigation that kept you engaged and coming back? Well, as, as I said, um, there's something in the law that just um, is central to my character. And both practicing and writing about it became two different outlets for the same, um, you know, the same kind of emotional stuff. Certainly when I was a prosecutor, I was just overwrought all the time um, because I was convinced that the people who I was prosecuting were guilty. I was lucky enough in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago that if I was not four square convinced of that, I didn't have to prosecute the case. The U.S. Attorney's advice always would be then drop the case. If you don't think the guy's guilty, forget about it. Um, so I thought this was a person who had done something wrong. And I thought what they had done wrong was really injurious to the community. And it was my job to try to set that right, um, to punish that person and to, you know, put an end to their activities. Um, being a defense lawyer was, you know, the flip side, you eventually realize as a prosecutor that the government makes mistakes uh, and that, it's really important to ensure that the guilty get convicted, uh, but also that the innocent or the not clearly guilty go free. Uh, and, uh, you know, I enjoyed that part of my career as well. And I was lucky enough to serve on a lot of public bodies as well. Um, so, you know, that was very, very stimulating. I had a wonderful roll of the dice as a practicing lawyer. 
I will say I have noticed uh, since I retired in uh, in August of 2020 that the books come faster when you're not practicing. <laughs> oh. So um, yeah. that that has been good too. Well, thank you so much for your time. We want to definitely mention that as this comes out today, that the new book Suspect is out. I assume that is available everywhere that books are sold. And I know that uh, Barbara and I have both taken a look at it and are just really excited about it. Well, thank you. Thank you both. Wonderful. Thank you both for your time and uh, giving me the time to speak to your audience. And uh, so uh, I'm I'm very grateful. Thanks so much. We're thrilled to have you and I hope you get back to work on the next Pinky book. (laughs) 